Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program. Today's episode is part of a 12-part series highlighting major U.S. and New Jersey Supreme Court decisions, why they're relevant today, and how the law has evolved since that decision. Today, we're discussing the rights of students to access a public education without regard to citizenship status under the Equal Protection Clause in light of the landmark 1982 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Plyler v. Doe. Nearly 40 years later, this is still the seminal case for understanding the legal rights available to students anywhere in the United States, regardless of citizenship status. Today I have with me Rosa Chara. Rose is the immediate past president of the New Jersey State PTA and currently serves as legislative chairperson for New Jersey PTA. Rose, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here today and I'm excited to discuss the rights and services for undocumented children in such an important time that we are um, in right now. Thank you so much, Rose. Uh, We are really looking forward to this conversation today. So let's go back to 1977. Uh, Imagine you are one of the millions of children who endured a long and dangerous journey with your family to cross over from Mexico to the United States in hopes of a better life. Your parents did not enter the country legally for one of many all too familiar reasons. While these reasons vary, nearly all come out of a sense of desperation combined with a desire to ensure a better future for their children. You reach the United States and your parents seek to enroll you in public school. You're looking forward to making new friends, receiving a quality education and pursuing the American dream. But then you're told you're not welcome and you have no right to access a public education. That was the situation facing thousands of students in Texas and potentially millions of children across the United States when this case was brought in 1977. Two years earlier, in 1975, the Texas state legislature had passed a statute prohibiting state funds from being used to educate students who are not U.S. citizens and empowering school districts to deny enrollment to non-citizens. In light of the new law, James Plyler, who was the superintendent of the Tyler Independent School District in Texas, sought to deny tuition-free enrollment to students who could not establish that they were citizens. And he argued that the district had no choice because of this 1975 change in state law. 
So in this case, we had some fundamental legal questions that were in dispute. Um, and the main question was whether or not the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution applied to only United States citizens, or did it apply more broadly to all persons within a state? Another legal question was whether or not the US Supreme Court um, in analyzing what Texas was trying to do, whether they should analyze the issue um, and consider whether or not there was a compelling interest that was strong enough to justify denying a public education to non-citizens. And the court had to consider how much deference they were going to give to the Texas state law decision. Should they be analyzing uh, this decision using a rational basis analysis um, so that really if, the, if there was any rational basis for the decision, it would be acceptable? Or should they look more closely and engage in a strict scrutiny analysis um, because of the compelling interests that were at stake? The state of Texas argued that the law was rational and it was a rational use of limited public resources. And, and Texas argued that um, diverting limited resources to non-citizens uh, undermined the quality of education that Texas could provide to their uh, students who were citizens of the United States. And Texas further argued that non-citizens um, are not persons within the jurisdiction of the state under the United States Constitution, and therefore they had no constitutional protections. So we had critical, compelling questions at stake in this particular case. And the US Supreme Court struggled with this. Um, in a split decision, a 5-4 decision, the US Supreme Court ultimately rejected the argument from the state of Texas. And basically the US Supreme Court said that that was an overly narrow view of the Equal Protection Clause in that in fact, the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution uh, was meant to protect all persons within a state, not just all citizens within the state. The US Supreme Court argued that to look at the Equal Protection Clause otherwise would potentially create a permanent underclass of persons with lesser rights and would in effect sanction discrimination against a subset of individuals, in particular, in this case, a subset of our children. Uh, so the Supreme Court cited to prior, prior case law showing that due process rights applied to uh, non-citizens um, were the same as due process rights applied to citizens and that that should be true for equal protection as well. The court concluded that even under a rational basis analysis, there was no rational basis for the Texas decision. The court stressed that ensuring that all students have access to a basic public education uh, was really the key to providing opportunities for everyone to participate in some meaningful way in our society. The court further stressed that students really had no choice when it came to the decisions that were being made by their parents. So that arguably, even if one were to suggest that parents should not have made the decision to come to this country um, illegally, the students didn't make that decision. 
their minors, their children, they had no choice in the matter and should not be punished in any way because of that decision that was made. This U.S. Supreme Court decision built on a prior U.S. Supreme Court decision from the 1970s, Lau v. Nichols. And in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court had held that non-English speaking students were entitled to an education that included developing their English language proficiency skills. There actually had been an argument in the 1970s that perhaps students uh, simply should be in classrooms with all other students without any additional supports and that they weren't entitled to any additional supports to help students develop their English language proficiency. And the US Supreme Court rejected that argument in the 1970s. So that was a key landmark decision. And this case in Plyler v. Doe built on that prior decision from the US Supreme Court. So this decision came down nearly 40 years ago, and it's still relevant today um, in so many different ways. Um, the court made clear that we have to provide a public education to all students and that school districts are not to be in the business of confirming citizenship status. That is not the role of our public schools. And since then, our courts have made clear that we can't, through any backdoor means, try to somehow confirm that those who wish to register for our public schools are actually United States citizens. So this has become a major issue um, in New Jersey and across the nation where school districts, often with good intentions, uh, for example, have required at the time that students register that the parents or guardians provide a driver's license or other state issued ID at the time of registration. Our courts have said that in effect, if you do that, what you're doing is asking somebody to prove their citizenship status because you would only have that state issued ID if you were a citizen. And courts have made clear we cannot do that. So that means that many school districts have to rethink their registration process and no longer mandate that somebody provide a driver's license or other state issued ID. Since this decision, um, there have been a number of other decisions clarifying First Amendment rights that are available to students. Um, so while we have fundamental rights uh, under the First Amendment and students have fundamental rights, they must be balanced against the need to protect against hate speech. So for example, in recent years, we have seen instances of large numbers of students in aggressive ways chanting things like build that wall in a way that was meant to ostracize or, or deride um, students who were perceived as perhaps not being US citizens. Uh, we have seen very disturbing anti-Asian sentiment um, targeting some individuals and blaming them uh, for our current global pandemic uh, because they were of Asian descent. That sort of speech is not protected under the First Amendment, um, and that's been a clear um, clarification and evolution of, in our law uh, since the Plyler decision. Students um, may still have the right to be educated in a New Jersey public school, even if a student graduated in their native country. That's an important evolution in the law since the Plyler case. We had a major New Jersey decision that said if a student is under age 20 um, and that student received an education that was not comparable to what they would have received in New Jersey. So they're coming from another country, they received, received a, a high school diploma in their native country, but it was not comparable to what they would have received in New Jersey. 
that that child can still enroll in a New Jersey public school and pursue a public education in New Jersey. That was a major development in the law. We have had a number of court cases in New Jersey and across the country that stress the need to ensure equal access to all aspects of public education for English language learners. And that includes things like gifted education. Unfortunately, unfortunately, when you look at the data across the country, English language learners are severely underrepresented in our higher level, more rigorous courses. And there are some challenges that come with identifying gifted students who are English language learners, um, as we're trying to also help those students develop their English language proficiency. But those challenges are not an excuse to under-identify and under-support those students. There is a clear need to address the underlying fears of families that they will, that they will face potentially deportation if they were for example, to make waves if their child was in some way struggling in our public schools. And our courts have made clear that we have to provide the same level of ongoing support for our English language learners as we provide for all other students. And parents should not be fearful of asking for help for their child simply because they're worried about um, whether or not uh, they could face deportation. That fear should never enter the mind of a parent or guardian or a child in our public schools. There is a need for us to acknowledge the impact of adverse childhood experiences for some of our English language learners coming from other countries. Some of those students have had tremendous trauma that they have had to endure, uh, horrible persecution that they have had to flee. Um, oftentimes coming to the United States as unaccompanied minors or students with limited or interrupted formal education. All of these traumas we know can have a, a tremendous lifetime impact on students and we have both a moral and legal obligation to make sure that we're addressing those issues. And when it comes to our English language learners, students coming from other countries, of course sometimes those students also may have a disability. And some school districts have been under the misunderstanding that if a student is an English language learner and also has a disability, that we have to ch somehow choose and only meet one of those needs. And our courts have made clear that's not true at all. The same student may have compelling needs that have to be met both as an English language learner and as a student with a disability. And we have to make sure that we're looking at the whole child and addressing all of their needs. So we've had this important case that in many ways we take for granted um, 40 years later, um, but we shouldn't. And as we think about this case, as we think about how the law is developed, I wanna bring you into this conversation, Rose, to think about some key questions that we still are struggling with in this country when it comes to supporting um, our English language learners. So let me start, Rose, with a question about what do you see as some of the fears that parents and guardians of undocumented students may have that could result in not reporting issues of concern to school officials? And how can schools try to help address those fears? So I think uh, one of the biggest fears is, is mistrust, for sure. Uh, also, the fear of not having a plan in place in case the parents' families are separated, are deported. 
Um, another big fear that we have heard about is bullying, uh, which causes children to become very disengaged in during school. Um, I, it's so important that building a trusting relationship with each family on the school's end, uh, again, is very important. Parents learn to trust when they see that the school community really does care. Um, things like per, uh, personal communication from a teacher about a child's strength and successes come, you know, it, it's very important, particularly uh, welcome now, you know, with everything that's going on. Um, another fear of parents that they have is the confidentiality piece. It is so important to families that their child's school records and other situations are safe so that they don't pose a threat of unintended consequences. So really in a nutshell, how schools and parent groups can address some of these fears is to just make sure that everyone feels safe in their school community. Educate families on what it means to feel safe. Um, you know, immigrant families have installed in their children to behave, not to call attention to them or their families. So these children are keeping all of those fears bottled up and are so afraid to make waves by, re by reaching out to a teacher or guidance counselor when they do have a problem with something going on or don't understand something. So this is why it's important that schools make all students feel safe and with the help of parents group connecting families to resources, offering workshops, trainings. This really helps them um, engage, the parents engage in their child's education as much as possible and hopefully develop some of that trust that when that child does leave the home or is in school, whether it's remotely or now going back into school building, that there is that trust factor there. So for families fleeing oppression in their native country, children can suffer significant trauma. Uh, how can schools work with uh, families to better understand the traumatic situations that may have occurred and, and support both the student and their family moving forward? Um, oppression has caused so much hurt and fear in families, and these feelings have been transferred to the child. Um, creating a, a classroom culture that values the marginalized children is so important to make the child feel safe, but also make the families feel that they can, again, that trust factor comes back into place, that the trust of the teacher is so important. The more stable a school keeps the classroom and the school overall, the better that child and family will feel and feel that there is that trust and that um, comfort in the school community. I know one of the important uh, ways that we can make sure that our English language learners are part of the school community is to have their parents very engaged in a local PTA. But that can be difficult at times if you have parents who are non-English speaking. Uh, so Rose, any thoughts on how uh, the local PTA can work with non-English speaking parents to make sure they feel like they are a welcome and critical part of the school community? Yes, uh, definitely, um, you know, it's important for the school, the parent groups, to be prepared to speak their language. And I know in PTA, um, we have done work where we have gone into schools to help our local leaders um, to have that um, 
training of what should be done with parents that don't speak the same language. You, uh, number one, you want to be able to invite them to join the parent group. And obviously, you know, if your membership form is done just in English, that's not going to be possible. So we help with translations of materials, again, to make everyone feel welcome. Be open uh, to making everyone feel welcomed by sometimes, you know, and again, this is more when we were all in the school, but you know, when uh, different snacks are served or um, refreshments at a meeting or at an event, make sure that it's um, food that the families are going to be comfortable with also that they're used to. Um, also materials, resources, even the automatic messages that come from the school or from the PTA, make sure that they are in languages that family can understand and read. You know, I can relate to this in a way that, you know, my parents were both born in Italy. So when I started school, they depended on me or our neighbors to translate the notices that were sent home. Um, now this is something at New Jersey PTA that we uh, try to teach our local leaders to make sure that the information that's going out to parents um, of the, that are of the school community and want to include them to be part of that school community, that those language barriers are not there and that they are receiving information that they are able to understand. That's such a great point. And we certainly don't want to put all of the burden on the child to have to do all of those translations. Um, you know, even your most gifted child shouldn't have those pressures placed on them to have to share um, in, that, in that responsibility. Um, so let me ask you, um, given the rise that we have seen in hate crimes targeting individuals of Asian descent, um, and the fact that we do have many students who, of course, are coming into our schools from Asian countries. What additional steps should schools and parents be taking to address the needs of those students? So I think, you know, before we started taping this, we were talking a little bit about this. And I mentioned to you that some of the shows that, you know, late at night, you know, you sit on the couch and catch up on some of your nightly shows. A lot of the shows that have um, Asian descent, actors in the part of their show um, are having these public service announcements. And I think those are so important. And I thought it was great that those are included. Uh, now, how do we trickle that into the school and, and to, with our uh, parent groups? Um, I think we definitely need to address these implicit biases that are going on. And again, that education piece is so important. Uh, educate others on what is implicit bias. It's so unfortunate that not only has the coronavirus pandemic caused so much anxiety for parents and their children, but now it's also putting a target on the Asian community. Um, the Asian community is so focused on academics and they trust the school system. You know, we need to do our job in making sure that all students um, now more than ever um, feel that their uh, needs are met. And, and again, like I mentioned, it's sad that things that have gone on have, have affected our um, uh, Asian, the children of Asian descent. And uh, it's so important to have that um, education piece there where you know, we're, we're intentional about making sure that some of this training is going on for our parents and for the students. So of course we, um live in a country where we oftentimes will have spirited debate um, and disagreement 
on major political issues and certainly um, one of the long-lasting uh, political debates that we have had in this country deals with immigration reform. So how can schools ensure that current discussions of political issues like immigration reform don't lead to negative repercussions for our uh, immigrant children? So um, the one thing that I have said over and over, you know, even before this problem itself is that um, that in PTA in education in our school, there is no room for politics. But with that being said, we know it's not always the case. And like you mentioned, now more than ever, it has become an issue. Um, we just need to be intentional. Again, that education piece intentional and in educating our students and the school community that everyone is entitled um, and receiving an equitable education. I, you know, this uh, program that you talked about today said it best, you know, that this is why we do what we do, that we are, again, I keep saying that word, but that we are intentional in educating our students and the community, the parents, um, to make them understand that everyone is entitled uh, to an equitable education. This education piece we found in PTA is especially important in middle school and in high school. Um, and I know more and more uh, teachers are working on this type of training. And I know that the PTA is doing a lot to make sure that, um, that this is taking place also. So uh, Rose, I want to, uh, as always, thank you for the wonderful partnership that we have with New Jersey PTA for your great insights. Any final thoughts uh, before we look to wrap up today's podcast? Dave, I want to thank you for this, uh, having the PTA at the table for this important topic. And um, if you are not part of your parent group, uh, or if, you know, if you're listening to this as an educator and your parents are not involved, in um, being part of the education piece about this topic, please make sure that collaboration is, um, is going on. Because again, like you said right from the beginning, every child, no matter their situation, um, should um, be entitled to an equitable education and feel safe, not only in their home, but also in their school. So for those who are interested in more information regarding the topics that we've discussed today, we encourage you to go to the Legal One website. Uh, we've included information, including the US Supreme Court decision in Plyler v. Doe, and lots of great resources um, from Legal One and um, some wonderful resources from New Jersey PTA. Uh, regarding this important topic. So I encourage you to look at our website for that information. Our Legal One website is www.njpsa.org slash Legal One NJ. And the New Jersey PTA website is www.njpta.org. Again, today's uh, podcast is part of our 12 part series addressing major US and New Jersey Supreme Court decisions. Uh, we thank you for listening to today's episode. Uh, we look forward to having you with us on future podcasts, and I wish everyone well. Be safe, be well, and we look forward to seeing you on future uh, episodes of the Legal One podcast. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.